So I think, you know, part of the interesting thing about Nigeria and Nigerian democracy is that I think sort of the mainstream analysis of, of how Nigerian politics plays out is just starting to think in categories like class or in categories like ideology, not because they haven't been playing a critical role in politics for a long time, just because I think our analysts have been a bit enamored with, you know, these classic ways of analyzing African politics from the perspective mm. of ethnicity or, you know, sort of opportunism. Neo-patrimonialism. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. In fact, that's the, yeah, it, the term that collapses both of those things, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, for those who don't know, that's the classic term that a certain strand of African scholars go to say, like, say, say things like social classes don't exist in Africa. Neither does ideology. All there exists is patrimonial relations and sort of primordial tribal instincts that govern everything. Mm-hmm. Spot on. <laughs> well put. All right, welcome everyone. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? Well, we're recording this on Saturday, the 9th of February, and a week today on the 16th, Africa's uh, most populous country goes to the polls. Uh, This is a race which is generally believed to be between a former dictator who's been president for the past four years and a kleptocrat of international repute on the other side. So this will be President uh, Mohamedou Bahari of the All Progressive Congress and Atiku Abubakar, uh, the for- who's the, a former vice president from the 1990s of the People's Democratic Party. Uh, all this is going to be explained out. Uh, but just as a sort of setting the scene, we all know that we all know how Af- Africa is often spoken about and written about as if it sort of lay outside of history that events are driven by primordial instincts or pre-modern relation to uh, ethnic conflict and so on, rather than economic interests or social classes or ideology or any of the ways that we normally understand uh, developed Western nations. Nigeria, just to take the example, is often written off as a sort of basket case that's failed to develop properly uh, because of tribal disputes or because of corruption. But regular listeners to this podcast will know that sometimes things from the past can some ways presage the future. Uh, This is the way in which we've talked about Italy in the past. Uh, And I guess one thing we want to explore here is what if Nigeria itself offers in some ways a sad vision of the future uh, rather than being a country that's never been able to escape its past. Uh, So thinking about Nigeria today, we've got a case where a former military dictator uh, has been elected as president and that was viewed as a victory for democracy, as a peaceful transition of power. Uh, but Nigeria has also been the site of very uh, of, a, of a political conflict which is dominated by anti-corruption. And we've discussed this on Alpha Bunga Bunga many times in the past of the ways that anti-corruption comes to dominate any meaningful ideological dispute. Um, and in Nigeria's case, as far as I understand, it's been used to justify repression uh, in, in conjunction with the war against Boko Haram. Anyway loads to unpack so we're very happy to welcome Saeed Husseini uh, to speak to us about all of this. Uh, Saeed's based in Lagos but he's a PhD student at Oxford uh, doing his thesis on Nigerian political party at Nigerian political parties and their development. 
Specifically, he's interested in exploring why there's mass party membership in Nigeria. Something that's happening now, long after its climax in Europe, which is great, sounds fascinating, and sounds very much up our street. Uh, welcome, Saeed. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to be uh, on the podcast. Great. So let's get started. And the first question is going to be a kind of very general softball sort of question, but we need to set the scene. Could you explain to us the basic political and ethnic divisions in Nigeria and maybe make reference to how Nigerian politics has evolved since democratization in 1999? Okay, that sounds like a softball to you, but actually... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know. These ones are hard. It's actually, it sounds like a softball, but it's, yeah, this is the trickiest (laughs) one. Yeah, I think we basically have to set up the terminology so everyone can understand what we're talking about. No, fair enough. I mean, so in, in partisan terms, um, Nigeria has got two major parties, um, the All Progressives Congress, the APC, which is the party in power now, um, headed by President Muhammadu Buhari, and the PDP, which actually ruled um, Nigeria since democratization in 99 till 2015, um, when, you know, the current president, Buhari, beat the incumbent, um, good luck, Jonathan. Uh, in a historic election as an opposition candidate had never won uh, prior to that point in Nigeria. Um, The parties, um, from my standpoint, don't necessarily represent two opposing ideologies. So they're quite similar. And in fact, it's um, very common to see politicians from one side cross over en masse to the other side. Um, This is often kind of thought about as evidence of you know, what you were citing at the beginning, the sort of absence of ideological politics in Africa and, um, you know, the sort of dominance of opportunism and, you know, sort of self-driven, money-driven politics. Um, but in my view, I think that sort of misses the point. I think, you know, what we fail to realize is not that, you know, the absence of competition between these two parties suggests the absence of ideology. In my view, it rather suggests the convergence and the depth of ideology, where, in fact, you know, two parties can be so dominant that, um, or a single vision of how society should be ordered can be so dominant that it sort of sways members of the political elite on both sides of the supposed divide. And from my standpoint, that's, you know, the, what, what, what that ideology is, is um, a sort of fusion of very far right ideas, you know, to do with ethnicity and tribe and, you know, how various ethnic groups should dominate politics. And I'll say a bit more about that. Um, in response to your question about the ethnic divide. So on the one hand, you have this sort of far-right, very powerful ethnocultural organizations that intervene in politics and um, to whom politicians often sort of ingratiate themselves. And on the other hand, you have a sort of centrist uh, orientation uh, emerging amongst Nigerian politicians, um, you know, where conversation is around good governance, um, technocracy, growth, uh, and to some extent, even the sort of anti-corruption debates that you referenced um, lie. So I see it as a sort of fusion of center-right, of, cent- of centrism and, and sort of far-right populism, sort of center-right populism. Um, and it's one that unites both parties rather than divides them, um, in my view. And then in terms of the ethnic makeup of the country, I mean, it's uh, uh, quite a divided country. We've got something like 400 different ethnic groups. Um, but we have three major ones that um, dominate uh, the three big regions of the country. In the north, you've got the House of Fulani, um, who actually, in the pre-colonial era, uh, forged a sort of empire 
that dominant that ruled that part of the country. And then in the southwest, you've got uh, the Yoruba, and in the east, you've got the Igbo, um, who some might know uh, were part of a separatist movement that sparked the Nigerian Civil War, um, where the state of Biafra was born and then um, subsequently um, defeated in the Civil War by, by the Nigerian state. So, yeah, it's a country marked by quite a few divisions and a very complex history. Um, but despite that, we've, so, we've somehow arrived at the point now where we have two parties that more or less represent the same um, ideological and sort of normative outlook um, and it's a situation I think that's very easily misunderstood, in part because of the complexities. Um, but this election promises to be an interesting one, I think, from a number of these standpoints. I think this is great, especially this sort of fusion that you were speaking about between the sort of far-right populist ethno-nationalist politics and sort of centrist technocratic anti-corruption politics, because that definitely sounds a lot like what's happening in Europe or Brazil right now, where you have someone like Sergio Moro, who's a supposed centrist, modernist, anti-corruption crusader aligned with Bolsonaro. It sounds very familiar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, now let's uh, just to move on a bit. Um, can you uh, basically speak about uh, what is the current state of the elections? Uh, there's been a lot of reportage in the news that perhaps there's a, the fixes in Buhari's intervened in the uh, country's highest court and taken mm -hmm. down a judge. I think whose name is Walter Onogen. Is that yes. probably pronounced here? Uh, is this a sign that the fixes in? What's basically happening with these elections right now? Sure. I mean, yeah, I think. You know the power of incumbency is um, quite, uh, you know, strong in a context like Nigeria, where you know a lot of the institutions, particularly the judiciary and the electoral institutions, um, are still undermined, um, you know, quite frequently. And so, yes, I mean, so Buhari, like you rightly said, has has recently just removed um, or suspended the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Walter Noggin. Um, and this is being interpreted as a move to prevent his party from losing electoral disputes in courts. Um, you know, so basically stacking up the courts, uh, you know, in anticipation of potential electoral disputes. And I agree. I think, I think though, that this, that's going to have more of an impact uh, in the state election. So Nigeria runs a federal system. If it's not already um, too complicated for the listeners... Uh, and so the the um, election we're referring to is the presidential election, which will hold next weekend. But then we also have state elections, which are scheduled to hold um, March 2nd. And while the presidential, yeah, does seem to be tilting fairly solidly in Buhari's favor at the moment, the states look a little more shape, shaky for the ruling party. Um, and those state elections are very often resolved in court because... Um, that's where sort of attention of, uh, you know, the sort of civil society um, activists, the international community wanes a little bit. Uh, and that's also where, you know, local politicians are more likely to hire, you know, sort of thugs or militia groups to kind of scuttle the electoral process, leading to, you know, prolonged legal disputes. Um, so that's one reason, I think, why the, the chief justice... Uh, has been suspended. Of course, the justification for removing him was corruption. You know, it happened to be, you know, the government sort of happened to conveniently find dollars 
in 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 uh, the Chief Justice's account, um, bank accounts, and you know I've cited this as as evidence that he he's somehow involved in corrupt practices, and that may well be actually it's hard it's hard to say exactly, um, but of course the timing suggests to everyone that you know they're trying to sort of um, dot their eyes and cross their t's. Um, there's also the fact that you know to to sort of um, reference again this sort of ethno-nationalist question that's never too far off in, in um, Nigerian politics. There's also the fact that this judge was a Southern Christian judge, um, you know, and so his removal by Northern Muslim president will play very well with the Northern Muslim base, you know, who will hear on the radio that a corrupt Christian judge has been removed. You know, it's uh, kind of sounds almost like a story from, you know, it's sort of Islamic texts or, or myth. <laughs> And and in fact, this guy has been replaced by, you know, a qualified chief justice as well. But you know, somebody who's a Muslim and kind of embodies the look of a sort of northern imam. So, I mean, yeah, it it will from the perspective of the of the ruling party, you know, this serves multiple functions. And so, in a sense, it was a kind of stroke of genius um, diabolically. But this election, this election, this election here is going to be between two. Northern Muslim candidates, right? So, which is kind of different from from past uh, elections over the past twenty years in Nigeria, if I understand correctly. Yes, absolutely. So, Atiku Abubakar is also House of Fulani and Muslim. Um, so, what it boils down to in situations like this is who can be more Muslim and Fulani than the other person. On the one hand, you know, so you you sort of have a kind of, you know, sort of authenticity politics, uh, you know, where they try to outdo each other and how often they pray publicly or, you know, which of them seems more aligned with kind of tradition and, and faith. Um, but on the other hand, they, 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 they still try to manage to kind of have the ethno-nationalist question on the table by who they choose as vice presidents. So the ruling party uh, has, ha, has as its vice president a pastor um, from the southwest called Yemi Osimbajo, uh, who's again a Christian and Yoruba, um, you know. So this is part of the calculation they are using to secure the vote in the southwest. Because also, constitutionally in Nigeria, a party is required to win votes outside of. You, you can't just you can't win an election only in one region. Right? You have to have mm. a spread across multiple regions, you know. And so you know this the way in which parties try to navigate this is by having a mixed ticket of maybe a president from one region uh, and the and the vice president from another. On the other hand, the, the PDP, the opposition party, even though the the the, the front the front runner Atiku is is a northern Muslim, his running mate is Peter Obi, who's from the south, the southeast, and is a Christian Igbo um, politician. So yeah, the sort of specter of ethno-nationalism, even if it's sort of pushed to the vice presidential level is still ever present in our, in our electoral politics. So um, just to follow in on this, uh, what was, is the role of anti-corruption politics in this election? And also what was the role of sort of anti-corruption in the election of Buhari himself? Uh, he mm -hmm. was, uh, if I remember correctly, his big promise was he was going to clean up the country because he knew what was wrong and he wasn't uh, beholden to the same interest as a sort of mm -hmm. outsider figure, of course, as the outsider former military dictator. And <laughs> I mean, I, I, I kind of feel sometimes 
and it's something I've written about a lot, that in uh, when basically there's not a huge sort of political division between the major political parties, particularly in terms of things like economic policy, uh, anti-corruption replaces having to promise to deliver, you know, development or projects or welfare to mm-hmm. uh, voters. Mm-hmm. So is this something that would be fair to say in Nigeria? And how does anti-corruption politics work there exactly? Yeah, it's a good question. And you're right that what brought Buhari to power, you know, one of the main pillars of, of his campaign was a sort of fight against corruption. And in fact, this is part of the reason why his legacy as an authoritarian, authoritarian, former authoritarian dictator in the, in the 80s was kind of um, repackaged and renovated because, you know, having that credential as having been a military guy who cracked down sort of firmly on corrupt politicians in his time, which he did do, um, and, you know, in, in very repressive ways, um, was something that was quite welcomed by, by Nigerians in 2015. Um, because the former president, Goodluck Jonathan, his administration was perceived to have been sort of monumentally corrupt. Um, and this was a period uh, between 2011 and 2014 when the prices of oil were at historic um, heights. So, you know, this, of course, um, uh, was squandered in very many ways, uh, uh, went in a number of directions and was the cause of uh, numerous scandals during Jonathan's time. So this is, yeah, you're right. This is part of a huge reason why, um, or one of the huge reasons why Buhari was favored in that election. Uh, And the other one is security, which I'm sure we'll touch upon uh, down the line. Uh, And it continues to feature in this election, although in a different sort of way. I mean, Buhari's appeal, because he does still have quite a, a strong appeal in the North, is mixed. I mean, it's not just because of his ethnic um, identity. It's also because of this legacy of, of, of being a kind of tough anti-corruption czar. Um, and there is some overlap between, you know, the sort of Islamic piety of Buhari and, and this, this view that he's, he uh, is, is, you know, incorruptible. Um, but that anti-corruption legacy still mobilizes very powerfully in the North and particularly amongst um, the poor in the North. Um, On the other hand, though, I think particularly amongst sort of middle class voters, and you hear this a lot in Lagos, you know, where where I'm based, where the middle class people complain endlessly about how the economy has fared under Buhari. Um, And in fact, you know, Buhari um, came into power right before the price of oil crashed, uh, triggering a recession, which, um, you know, occurred in other oil dependent countries around the world and in Africa, including Angola, right? So let me um, just to jump in. I mean, how much of the recent, you know, the kind of past four years of, of stagnation, how much of that is dependent on the drop in oil price? I mean, it's got to be the main component, right? And you can tell because in other contexts where, you know, in other extremely oil dependent contexts, similar to Nigeria, you had fairly similar responses to the drop in oil price. But there has there's, there are also issues of mismanagement and, you know, it's sort of their questions regarding how well uh, the Buhari administration responded, uh, you know, to the to the collapse in oil price. Um, and that's, you know, quite an interesting debate. Um, but I think the key point there is to say, you know, is to say that from the perspective of middle class voters, it was Buhari's fault, mm. you know, and and, um, you know, so interestingly, we have a situation where 
you know, and and I should backtrack and say that one of the immediate consequences of the the, the recession and the collapse in oil prices is that Nigeria's currency also entered into a period of vulnerability and um, declined quite a bit. Uh, Nigeria's currency, the naira, is pegged to the dollar, uh, you know, and so the rates, the naira conversion, the naira dollar conversion rates suffered under Buhari. So, you know, one way to frame the election now in terms of, you know, who supports whom and the sort of social and demographic breakdown is the people who are, were quite concerned with the price of the dollar will, are likely to vote against Buhari, whereas the people who are concerned with the price of fertilizers and, you know, the Buhari administration put in place programs that um, have the price of fertilizers, uh, you know, and sort of removed some of the corruption in the agricultural sector. Mm. You know, so this is part of why he's loved by rural people in the north. So the people who are kind of concerned about the price of fertilizer will probably go Buhari. So it's a sort of fertilizer versus dollar um, election. You know, you could, you could perhaps frame it that way. Yeah, so that I mean, there's the sort of more external facing bits of the economy lean one way and, and the more rural and agricultural bits uh, face another way. I mean, I guess that would be the, the sort of division that you have emerging in this election. Exactly. And how and to, to what extent is that an ongoing or longer term division? I mean, it's not one that we've picked up on before. Right. Um, I think it's but, you know, but that's not to say that it's not been there. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, part of the interesting thing about Nigeria and Nigerian democracy is that I think sort of the mainstream analysis of, of how Nigerian politics plays out is just starting to think in categories like class or in categories like ideology, not because they haven't been playing a critical role in politics for a long time, just because I think our analysts have been a bit enamored with you know these classic ways of analyzing African politics from the perspective mm. of ethnicity or you know sort of opportunism. Neo-patrimonialism. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. In fact, that's the. Yeah, first- uh, the term that collapses both of those things, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, for those who don't know, that's the classic term that a certain strand of African scholars go to say, like, say, say things like social classes don't exist in Africa, neither does ideology. All there exists is patrimonial relations and sort of primordial tribal instincts that govern everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spot on. Yeah, well put. So I wanted to ask about another angle on this, which is the role of the military and uh, its its role in in Nigerian society. I mean, two former president, two former military dictators have been elected uh, democratic presidents. To what extent mm-hmm. does the Nigerian political system and perhaps the Nigerian elite depend on these military figures, whether in material or or symbolic terms, to organize politics in Nigeria? It's a really good question, and I I mean, it, I think it touches on one of the kind of fundamental issues in Nigerian politics. And it's the fact that um, the sort of military, the top brass of the military from the 80s and uh, 70s and 80s still materially dominates Nigerian politics. So, you know, the, this, these are the leaders who, in the midst of Nigeria's oil boom, were uh, Nigeria's first oil boom in the 70s, were enriched um, and were kind of, in the upper ranks of the military, when Nigeria gained and um, regained, uh, re- came back to democracy in 1999. Uh, yeah, and you know, lots of these former military leaders still continue to fund parties. Uh, you know, still continue to run in elections. Um, you know, and they still maintain 
in some cases quite a bit of popularity from that era, um, despite the fact that lots of them also were anti-democratic and repressive. Uh, you know, and that's an interesting contradiction that we're, I think, as a nation, still trying to resolve. And you're right to say, yeah, I mean, part of the influence is also symbolic. I mean, someone like Buhari, you know, like we've said, in part mobilizes voters because they see him as a strong-willed guy who can kind of beat politicians back into shape. Um, but in terms of formally, uh, and in the contemporary era, the military, I think, has retreated from politics. I think the the generation of military leaders that are that of retired military leaders that are that still participate was probably the last one that kind of saw itself as a kind of vanguard or sort of protective um, uh, sort of cadre of, of Nigeria's democracy. Um, but after they left, they also retired, you know, a bunch of their contemporaries and did a kind of sweep of of the military, removing a lot of the sort of political influences that were still in place. So the military nowadays is a lot less, at least as a as as a formal institution, is a lot less politicized than it used to be, uh, and is more likely to actually follow the instructions handed down by mm. the now now civilian former generals. To come in again, I think uh, one of the other things that you see uh, in some of the Western coverage of these elections, and this is something that we've been seeing for years in terms of coverage of African politics, particularly when the Afropolitan thing was more up and was more like uh, fashionable, which is sure. basically that there's this, this new middle class youth who are more international, who are sick and tired and restless of the old ways and want something different. <laughs> and uh, in this election, the narrative is this talk of the modern democratic party which is a very original name right, right, uh, right. led led by a, i believe a nigerian uh, singer and i'm probably going to butcher this name olobankole wellington yeah yeah banky uh, w yeah banky w yeah. and uh, i i have to i have to like read this quote from his uh, i think keynote speech when this party was launched uh, because this is just amazing for me he goes and arsenal fan tv viewers will appreciate this I realized that all my, in all my years of activism in Nigeria didn't amount to much more than my plight as an Arsenal fan. You see, as Arsenal fans, we love our club, but we know it was time for change. We complained, we tweeted, we held up banners at the stadium, we shouted and hashtag for many years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So could you, is this just like uh, a new wave of celebrity politics? Is this something which is actually meaningful beyond... Uh, the people who want to use Arsenal fan TV to understand Nigerian politics? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I think it's probably not that useful, sadly. I mean, I think, yeah, it's true that we're seeing on multiple levels, we're seeing um, new demographics participate in Nigerian politics. So like we've just talked about generals, but in fact, they're not the only ones that are, you know, quite influential on in national and state level politics. You also have you know, a new class of professionals um, who have emerged as governors um, or even the vice president who's a sort of constitutional lawyer. Uh, you know, so Nigeria has already witnessed, I think, a first or second wave of kind of um, non-military politicians. And I think the outcome has been disappointing. Uh, you know, so I'm not necessarily convinced that, you know, what what will fix things is kind of... Banky yeah, it's Banky W, or indeed any other Arsenal fan, but that's a slightly different question. 
These are niche references for those who don't follow. I don't think you. I'm not even gonna explain I, I out what it is. I, I can't trust them with power. They're hysterics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, but you'll see. Uh, you know, more and more Nollywood. Uh, so this is Nigerian. The Nigerian film industry goes by uh, Nollywood. You'll see more and more Nollywood. Which I believe is the second most, um, uh, second most productive film industry in the world after India. That is true. Correct. Your, your Nigerian fans would be pleased. Um, but yeah, you'll see more of more kind of public popular figures emerge and participate in politics. But yet, as of as of yet, we've not really seen any of these figures embrace radical ideas, right? Embrace kind of different conceptions of how you would actually order society. I mean, the majority of them still either belong to the mainstream parties that are dominated by these figures that we've discussed, or you know, are sort of standing up new parties. Um, that are still aligned one way or the other with, with the major ones. So before we move on to questions of labor and trade unions, which we definitely have to discuss, I did want to ask about another seemingly new energetic figure trying to enter Nigerian politics. Uh, in fact, Said, this was something that you sent us, uh, which you found interesting, which is this guy, Saware, who mm-hmm. seems to have a plan to re-energize uh, Nigerian politics. He's very anti-corruption. He's a shiny new figure. Uh, but when you hear about him, he sounds like a kind of classic, a, a kind of classic figure of, of middle class politics, which uh, doesn't ha- have the sufficient radicalism to really transform politics, despite his pretenses at, uh, at renovation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're, you're by and large right. I mean, so, you know, Shore is a professor in, in New York, I believe, and he also runs um, a media outlet called Sahara Reporters that receives a lot of international funding. Uh, and he stepped into the scene with quite a bit of excitement from particularly um, young people um but yeah you're right i mean he he himself doesn't have very clear kind of alternative uh policies for how nigeria should work and has replicated quite familiar discourses around anti-corruption you know around sort of you know good governance and growth um but at the same time i think part of why shori has excited the youth is in part because he he does come from he's cut from quite a different cloth uh, and has tried to tailor his message to a mass audience. Uh, you know, so when you attend his, his rallies or, or listen to them, he's talking about a sort of class divide. I mean, he's mobilizing um, a, a sort of anti-elite sentiments where he's saying that the two main political parties represent, you know, the, the issue and that what we need is parties that kind of represent the cause of the, of the common man. So, you know, he's trying to mobilize a kind of populist uh, rhetoric. And, you know, the, he's, he's also split up the kind of nascent Nigerian left to a certain extent, because there are people on the left who believe that maybe Shore can offer, if not the solution, then at least a kind of um, entry point, a kind of vehicle um, that the left can build on in the future. But there are others who you know, are skeptical of that strategy and think it's been tried elsewhere and has failed, you know, too many times for it to be attempted here. Mm. But he's certainly one to watch, I think, uh, in, in, if not in this election, where I think, you know, he's unlikely to, to do astoundingly well. I think he'll still stick around and, and uh, will potentially be a strong contender in the 2023 election uh, after this. Uh, interesting. I mean, I mentioned it be- just because that type of figure seems so 
similar, I think, particularly in a lot of politics of the semi-periphery and periphery, where you have mm-hmm. someone who goes off to, uh, you know, to the core, goes to Europe or North America and and uh, and then returns. And, and I mean, under uh, in our times, I don't mean, you know, during the Cold War, because then often they'd sure. come back uh, radicalized and, and uh, you know, in a Marxist form um, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, carrying Marxist politics, whereas uh, many of these figures in our times seem to come back with yeah, some sort of technocratic populism, which sounds like a, an, an odd uh, sort of construction, but it's something that we've spoken about in the past mm-hmm. where they have populist elements, but often quite technocratic solutions for renewing a country's politics. To move on to what I had just foreshadowed before that, which is um, what's behind the uh, trade union mobilizations around oil prices? What impact has this had on Nigerian politics and I guess mm-hmm. more generally, what is the the role of organized labor? Does it act as an independent pole, an independent force in Nigerian politics? Yeah, good questions. I mean, of recent, what's what's um, kind of grabbed everyone's attention with regards to labor is that they've um, been agitating for a new minimum wage. Uh, you know, so previously the minimum wage was, uh, you know, something like. I mean, I'll, I'll get the figures wrong in, in dollars now, but, you know, they're really, I think the headline is that they're terribly low. And, um, you know, the, 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 the labor movement has been pushing for a very marginal increase, actually. Um, but this has been fought by both federal and state governments um, on all fronts. But the labor movement um, kind of threatened to take to the streets and to shut down the economy. Uh, in January, and I think fearing the repercussions this would have on the election in particular, uh, the federal government was forced to sort of expedite the whole protracted negotiation. Uh, and so, you know, we're about to potentially, you know, there's um, a decent chance that we'll actually get a new minimum wage um, in the next couple of months. Even though, like I say, it's quite it's quite a minimal in terms of in material terms, uh, the gain that this will represent. But I think in more symbolic terms, I think it does foreshadow a a slightly more active um, Nigerian Labour Congress, which is the kind, which is the umbrella body for uh, uh, our unions um, in the recent, in more recent times. I think since 2012, when Nigeria had its own version of the Occupy movement, uh, we've seen much more active labour politics start to emerge. Now, the truth is, uh, you know, the Nigerian Labour Congress, by and large, has not played a radical role in Nigerian politics. And in fact, you know, it generally is beholden to whatever government is in power, um, in part because of just how starved they are of resources um, due to quite deliberate policies by by the government. Um, but this is something that uh, seems to be changing. And it's hard to know exactly what is driving it. It might be... Um, a new, the new leadership, which which seems to be playing a much more strategic and um, frankly smart approach, you know, at least say for instance, the fact that they timed the the minimum wage struggle to um, coincide with the, the the sort of heat of the campaign period. Um, but you know, whether or not they can become more of a force um, for ordinary people and more of a force. Um, that's impactful in mainstream politics is something that is at the moment still quite unclear. So the other question that we haven't touched on yet is Boko Harim. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the current state of uh, the organization and the conflict 
in northern Nigeria? And also, what sort of role does terrorism play and security issues play in Nigerian politics? And is it used to justify repression mm-hmm. and political crackdowns in addition to uh, the increased power of the military? Sure. I, so in terms of where Boko Haram is at the moment, um, it has certainly had its capacity degraded over the years. So, I mean, that kind of height of the Boko Haram insurgency was 2014, uh, you know, when the group carried out historic amounts of attacks and, um, you know, killed perhaps hundreds of thousands of people. Um, you know, and just to sort of step back as a, as a as background, Boko Haram is this Islamist insurgency in the northeast of, of Nigeria has um, waged a war against the Nigerian government for about 10 years now. But to Buhari's credit, to a certain extent, I mean, the group has faced, um, you know, quite a bit more uh, pressure and coordinated sort of counterinsurgency uh, um, campaign from the federal government in the past four years. And so it's really a shadow of its old self now. But that's not to say they don't remain, remain quite dangerous. I mean, it's split up, the group is split up into um, a, a, another faction that's aligned supposedly with the Islamic State. In fact, this new faction calls itself the Islamic State West Africa province. Uh, you know, and it's been carrying out quite a few attacks in the lead up to the election, I think, in, in, in order to gain some attention. So we're likely to see this continue into the next um, at least year, uh, while the, whoever is the president kind of settles into his new agenda. Um, in terms of the military and you know the relationship there, I think yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm hesitant to credit Buhari entirely for, uh, you know, the the, I think, kind of degradation of Boko Haram in the in the past couple of years because it's come at quite a cost. Uh, you know, it's like you 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 hinted at it's been a quite repressive campaign on the part of the military. Uh, you know, we've heard numerous cases of extrajudicial extrajudicial killings. Uh, you know, people being jailed um, sort of indefinitely and without trial. Um, you know, we've also heard situations where communities are kind of raised to the ground um, just on the suspicion that they're harboring um, militants. So it has been a, an extremely nasty uh, campaign and continues to generate a very sort of horrific humanitarian situation with internally displaced people who are vulnerable to attacks, both from the government, you know, in cases where, you know, either by accident or, you know, just by sheer negligence, communities get bombed by airstrikes. And by Boko Haram, on the other hand, who sees these IDPs as kind of easy targets, the displaced people, that is. Um, so, yeah, that's that situation remains um, quite a painful and deadly one. And even though Boko Haram is on the back foot, um, yeah, we still see news of attacks on an almost weekly basis. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we often, with these sorts of, you know, military campaigns or whatever sort of repressive policing campaigns, even if it's in a totally different part of the country, one often ignores the extent to which uh, these things have effect on the internal life of the nation in, in a more general sense. Uh, in sort of increasing repression. So it's interesting to hear you mm-hmm. discuss that. Uh, I think we're nearly done and would like to wrap up here. I, I asked you kind of softball question, which it proved to be much harder at the start, but I'm going to ask <laughs> you another one, which might also seem kind of general, but might be kind of tricky. But um, basically, for, first of all, 
you know, could this election be fixed and what would be the repercussions of that? And then more generally, sure. what do you see the kind of trajectory looking like for Nigeria? I mean, is it is it a kind of stable situation which is, you know, anchored in this sort of phony conflict between the two main parties uh, mm-hmm. or is there is there more kind of a centrifugal forces at work is there any kind of new energy which is going to you know change nigerian politics in the in the forthcoming uh, couple of years you know for mm-hmm. good or ill those are good questions i mean in terms of you know the <clears throat> credibility of the election the uh government agency that manages the election is, is called INEC, the uh, independent national electoral commission they have improved their their capacity over the years. I mean, part of the big story that made the 2015 previous presidential election historic is that the INEC did a good job. Um, you know, so even if uh, um, we expect some level of um, kind of a fix, I, I think we'll we'll see it more in terms of politicians sort of trying to hire thugs or local criminal groups to sabotage various polling stations. Uh, and we'll also see, like I suggested earlier, um, a lot of legal disputes after the fact. But I think in terms of the management on the day of the election, INEC will probably be the strongest um, of all the kind of state institutions and the, the least, I think, biased of, of the state institutions that will play a part in this election. While the police, for instance, and the judiciary, as we've seen, um, you know, is quite stacked against the opposition. Uh, you know, so I think we'll, ex- we, it, I wouldn't be surprised if by, you know, quite general um, terms, the, the election is, is fairly, is run in a fairly credible and transparent way. Um, you know, but you can never say that 100% or guarantee that 100% in, in an election in Nigeria. In terms of long-term trends, I think these parties really ha- are in, entrenching their grip. You know, they, unlike a lot of the newer parties or the smaller um, parties that are led by, you know, one or the other charismatic candidate, be it Banky W, we talked about earlier, or Shore, these parties have a national, uh, sort of nationwide reach that reaches down into neighborhood polling units. You know, so they're quite extensive networks of of, um, organized sort of party bureaucracies. And... I mean, even, yeah, it seems like in the short run, they'll continue to dominate um, federal uh, electoral politics. But I think one area where we're seeing, you know, some new impulses emerge is in local politics at the state level. And I think our third parties and our our sort of um, alternative candidates are beginning to realize that if you can't play at the national level, if you can't sort of just come out and announce your presidential candidacy, then maybe you can try to build a local base. You know, and this is something that I think a lot of the members of Nigeria's left who are participating in Shore's campaign have been suggesting will be a positive direction to go in in the future. You know, why not take a local government or a senatorial campaign, uh, you know, and make that the sort of center of your attention and energy? perhaps in a similar way to what um, has occurred in the U.S., you know, in in the senatorial election in New York, where uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has emerged as a a senator. Um, But those sorts of of more local, uh, I think, forms of mobilization and organizing might 
or you know put, hold some opportunity for Nigerian politics going forward. That's very intriguing, uh, and I, I guess it's a, a questionable promise. Um, but at least maybe there's uh, there's some sort of movement there, which is interesting to try to understand. And I think we'll definitely have to come back to you after the election uh, to to discuss both the who's won and also uh, any future prospects. Say so, that's been brilliant. Thank you very much for for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, as per usual, we're gonna have a little chat between ourselves to discuss what we've just heard and draw out some of the more generalizable trends about the Nigerian election. So, Ben, firstly, uh, this notion of the mass party that exists in Nigeria and seems to be in decline everywhere else, uh, this obviously relates to our previous episode with Paulo Garbaldo, where the party form seems to be undergoing some form of renewal under a new digital form, making use of new digital technologies and so on. But this is something different. What's going on in Nigeria? Is there an ongoing mass participation in politics there? Well, that's actually one of the things I didn't know about Nigeria coming into uh, this discussion. Um, uh, as Saeed pointed out, um, the party membership and party participation within Nigeria's uh, main political parties is actually reasonably high, which is something that really bucks the trend we've seen in Europe. In fact, the mass party seems to have taken on a different form in Nigeria, in fact, uh, as he as he argued, it's there's a sort of like authoritarian ethnic uh, um, conservative uh, hegemony within the party system, combined with sort of a consensus on uh, neoliberal economics or uh, pro market economics, which is really But the so the idea that people are actually participating in this and are active participants in the party system is something which I think merits uh, more attention. Perhaps we can bring him on again. Because it's something which really we have to understand what particular dynamics are behind this and how this sort of bucks and changes with global trends. And uh, which also raises questions is uh, this sort of uh, ideological consensus, even if it's uh, just sort of far right politics in some of the cases, as uh, Saeed pointed out in the ethnic politics in Nigeria, is something which can actually bring people in, which is kind of a scary thought. Mm. Uh, is this something that could happen in a European country? Uh, is this something that could happen in perhaps a South American country where people are actively participating in mass par- parties, but uh, which are pursuing quite dangerous projects without ideological opposition? That's actually quite an interesting observation. Yeah, I think like it's striking that when we think about political participation and we speak about it in positive terms as essential to democracy, even in under kind of liberal terms of participation in parliamentary democracy voting, uh, mobilization, and so on, that it's assumed to be under universalist bases. That is to say, you know, ideological parties of the left and right competing uh, on the shared terrain of parliamentary politics and so on. That's how the democratic game works. But yeah, the high levels of participation under in context of very particularistic and ethnic-based politics is a kind of scary prospect. It's interesting, though, that the last Nigerian election had a really low turnout at something like 43 percent uh and you know nigeria is a massive country you know i I perhaps wasn't even fully conscious of the size of the population because it's just slightly smaller than it's just slightly smaller than brazil it's just under 200 million and it's set to grow perhaps up to 400 million Uh, at the same time it has um extreme poverty rates as high or higher than india i think even in absolute terms 
So I mean, that's really quite stark. And as I think we discussed earlier, you know, it has what it has the highest rate of Moet uh, champagne consumption in the world as well. <laughs> so you know that that paints a certain picture. Uh, and if that then devolves into sectarian or ethnic conflict, that's quite a scary prospect. Actually, I sort of follow straight on your point about uh, participation. Um, actually, one of the arguments that uh, sociologist Dylan Riley makes. Uh, in his study, the civic uh, origins of fascism, I think that's the name of it. Um, but you can also basically preview this argue, argument in a shorter form and more updated in his recent New Left Review essay on Trump, basically argues that uh, we have to understand fascism as fundamentally a democratic phenomenon based on uh, mass civil society participation within these parties and uh, movements. It's It wasn't something where people were told to go home. People were actually participating in a democratic way. And you can't uh, counterpose civic participation or political participation with uh, some sort of like anti-democratic movement because often people actually, when they get involved in civil society organizations, it leads to really uh, dangerous politics. I mean, you could look at evangelicals are highly involved. It's not necessary in political activities or community activities. It doesn't necessarily mean they uh, involved for progressive causes. So I think it's sort of this hangover from social movement literature and sort of a liberal reading of civil society as intrinsically good that people have uh, mistaken participation for democracy in some sort of uh, normative good sense. In this case, it doesn't have to be. And it's got historical comparisons with phenomenons were profoundly democratic, but anti-democratic, if uh, that contradiction makes any sense. Right. And I mean, I guess the argument, we're getting slightly, uh, slightly a bit of a tangent here, but the, you know, the argument about fascism there is that fascism emerges to counter also the mass participation of the left. I mean, that it is to say that, that it's a threat of organized mass communist parties and which fascism rises up to counter. But it also relies on a high degree of civic participation from uh, the the sectors of society from which it draws most, so from agrarian areas and from uh, the kind of urban petty bourgeoisie. So uh, the argument is not that you know high levels of participation are a bad thing, but I guess the <laughs> the qualifier that you're making, Ben, which is right, is that participation isn't necess- isn't just a complete unalloyed good, and that it's this happy clappy NGO style and and you know helping make the world a friendlier place. Yeah, I mean, this is just to come on and say, is like as we spoke at the beginning of the podcast, uh, politics exists in Africa, and people should pay attention to actual politics, not some sort of mystical neo-patrimonial spirit that inhabits the African people that is outside of modernity. And uh, I think another aspect of this that uh, we touched on is uh, the role of anti-corruption politics in all of this. Uh, at one level, we have anti-corruption politics uh, serves as a mobilizing cause for Buhari and his supporters. Uh, famously, they would come in with brooms as the symbol of their uh, movement to sweep clean the country, which was also used in 1960, actually, in, in mm. Brazil as another symbol of the Chanio Quadras' movement. But uh, anti-corruption seems to, in a way of not offering any sort of concrete or very ambitious economic uh, offerings or uh, big vision to people, you can just say, we're going to clean up the country. Um, that serves as sort of a marker of political differentiation, right, Alex? Yeah, I mean, it looks like, you know, there's always something else behind anti-corruption. When it's raised as a banner so high, it's always either in lieu of an actual political program, 
Uh, it's a way of rebranding yourself as clean as opposed to the the other dirty guys the the, the old, you know the old the old dogs of politics were something new or it it really serves to as a handmaiden to other political ends either pro market reforms by aiming to take down a sort of state business nexus that might exist um, against statism so so to speak which is something that happened in in Brazil over the past five years um, or it can be a, a handmade into more authoritarian politics to more repressive politics and I guess the, the interesting the thing with Nigeria is that you know th- this election is being fought between a uh, an incumbent who's a former military dictator who who's who's military dictator for for only a short period I think 20 months in the 1980s but nevertheless He's now come back in democratic form uh, and, you know, can use those credentials as a former military officer, military dictator as um, being hard against corruption. Of course, if you look at the history of military dictatorships uh, anywhere around the world, I think a hu- most of them have very high degree of, of corruption because you just don't have any democratic accountability. Uh, and the military turns itself into a sort of military bourgeoisie. Um but nevertheless, Buhari poses as uh, this this firm, um, this uh, iron-fisted uh, anti-corruption uh, figure. But he's had four years and has had very little progress in it. And he himself was infirm in a in a London hospital bed for most for a good part of his rule um, recently over the past four years. And then on the other side, you've got this neoliberal right who is very obviously tainted with corruption precisely because he inhabits the sort of money nexus in a much more obvious way than than Buhari. Um, and so you can see what the ideological differentiation is there in what purpose anti-corruption serves, whether one is less corrupt than the other or will make more progress in rooting out corruption or transforming the institutions of, of politics in Nigeria, I think is, a, is, is something we could be very skeptical about. Oh, yes. Uh, I also think that the idea that like you can clean up corruption just through changing faces or cracking down on the wrong people has proven to be a quite an ineffective uh, political paradigm. I also think that uh, we should also remind listeners that Buhari's uh, stays in uh, London hospitals uh, bring us back to the previous president, Goodluck Jonathan, who inherited his position after, uh, as he was the vice, as uh, the elected president had actually uh, spent almost a year, I think. I forget the exact amount of time, but it was a ridiculous amount of time mysteriously vanished at a clinic in Saudi Arabia. There was a lot of rumors he had died mm-hmm. earlier, and they just kept kept this on to uh, hide the succession battle brewing beneath the scenes. But He, he, uh, was, Nigeria he was replaced had... by Avril Lavigne. So, you know, yeah. it's an Avril Lavigne <laughs> case. He was replaced by a doppelganger. No one knows. Yeah, but, you know. yeah, yeah. Uh, the, or Gucci Man, Gucci, Gucci Man, who was, yeah. uh, who was apparently cloned. But... Uh, in that case, it just seems that Nigeria doesn't have a very good health record for its presidents, and these long stays in foreign clinics rarely uh, make one feel confident in the health of the country going forward. All right, all very interesting stuff. I want to echo Ben's call as well that uh, to to actually have a read about African politics and not obviously assume that it's just a, a morass of. A sectarian, identitarian, ethnic conflict, pre-modern patri- neo-patrimonialism, but uh, there's actually real politics going on. I hope we've been able to bring out some of that. I mean, there isn't a, a real new dynamic force here that we've been discussing in, in, in Nigerian politics, 
but you can see at least what the old order looks like uh, and what would need perhaps to to replace it uh your this has come out on a thursday the elections on a saturday have a look at the readings that we've compiled in the show notes if you want more on this um check out Saeed's work as well and we are back actually sooner than you might expect we're back with a little bonus episode with Amber Lee Frost talking about media shitness that's out right at the very beginning of next week catch you then bye bye